Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing, the award-winning podcast that is shattering podcast records throughout the nation. My name is Jody Jenkins. I'm Tony Clement. Every week, I try to come up with a new way to describe how awesome we are. And I've been doing, actually, I think I've been doing a pretty good job because... Yeah, you're, you're good. You're you touting. Know, you're shattering touting. records throughout the nation. <laughs> That's right. And the, the funny thing is, I'm sure there's probably people that are listening and think, Wow, I wonder what type of records they're shattering. Well, we did look at our we looked at our little bar chart there. Just yeah, we don't before. want to tell the numbers. Okay, no, but I'm just saying, like it's it, you know when when the show comes out on a Sunday, people download it. It's great. Well, I'll tell you one thing because I'm always looking for an opportunity to take a slam at these guys. We are better than the Hurley Burley, which of course is David Hurley and Scott Reed. I won't lump Jenny Byrne in there because I like Jenny. She's trying. Yeah, but she, you know, Scott Reed and David Hurley. They, they would. I would love to get them on this show. I think it would be fun to, to kind of merge our podcast for one show. They won't do it, though. They don't no, got the, no. the cojones. Scott Reed turned us down flat out, although he did make a donation to my homeless shelter. which He I, did do that, yeah, eh? So, yeah, well, well, I should check the receipts. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. He says he did, so I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we are continuing with our episodes around the conservative leadership candidates, and we're excited to have a good friend, uh, both of ours obviously knows Tony more than he knows me, but and I'll let Tony introduce him. But uh, we're excited to uh, welcome this gentleman on the show. Tony, take it away. Yes, uh, and with uh, full disclosure, I am supporting this person for leaders. So, oh, hang up, hang up the phone. <laughs> then. <laughs> no, I think we should make that clear. But of course, I'm talking about Aaron O'Toole, the Honorable Aaron O'Toole, member of Parliament for Durham, who was born in Montreal. He is 47 years old. Uh, he uh, ran last time in, in 2017 for leader, came third at that uh, time. Before that, he was Minister of Veterans Affairs in the Stephen Harper government. He is married to Rebecca, and they have two kids. Please, let's give a big and another thing podcast. Welcome to Aaron O'Toole. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, it's great to join you guys. Two friends and uh, an award-winning podcast, clearly. Yeah, absolutely. I, we've got the Gemini Award and the, the Brit the Brit Pop Award and all these awards. And the Eurovision Award. Uh, the Eurovision Award, exactly. It's uh, it's amazing what you can find on the internet. And but. can I, I just got, I want to tell my, a little Aaron O'Toole story sure. first off the top. Because the first time I ever met him was through my father-in-law. We went to a, it was, it must have been when you were, Running, running the very first time was it not? It was a fundraiser at Goodwood, the golf course. There was that a? Am I right? Twenty twelve. One of my one of my first fundraisers. I think it was the year after I'd won, actually, maybe twenty thirteen. And I represented Uxbridge at the time and Goodwood. Which yeah, was an amazing course. And uh, yeah, we had a great fundraiser. It was great to meet you. Yeah, and I don't I don't like to brag, but it was about ten thousand dollars to play in that event. So. But uh, it was. <laughs> hey, wait a minute! Wait a minute! When I was working for Aaron in the by-election, I think I got taken to the Port Perry Library. But, but the question, the real, the real thing I wanted to ask was, did you? I can't remember. Did you play golf or did you? Did you not? And if you didn't, why well, do you golf? I guess is my question. I'm, I'm not a ringer like you, Jody. So when <laughs> I play golf, you probably wouldn't consider it playing. You would say I was hacking up the grass at uh, Goodwood that day. At, uh, <laughs> But it was not ten thousand dollars for the record. No, I know. Was, I'm uh, kidding. Nowhere more than the Mac, and uh, but certainly to help me get elected, Tony in the library was priceless. I'll just put it that way. Oh, you're very <laughs> kind. You're very kind. Hey, listen, I do want to get uh, to the topic at hand. You are running for leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and uh, I've asked this question of Leslin and of Derek too, and I should ask you as well. Uh, you know, take us through the process. 
you had uh, you had run obviously in in 2017 for leader, uh, came a respectable third in that race. T- then all of a sudden, uh, Andrew Shear resigns in December for, from the leadership. It triggers a leadership convention. Take us through how you the conversations you had with Rebecca your wife and, and, and deciding to run again, because you of all people know how hard it is to run, uh, having done it just uh, a couple of years before. Uh, so tell us uh, your decision-making process for that. Well, it's an interesting question and not many people have really asked. It's funny, the morning Andrew resigned, um, I was, I had actually called the caucus meeting. I was briefing the caucus on the bad results on the NAFTA deal, in, in fact, particularly how Trudeau government allowed the aluminum industry and our auto parts industry to be uh, really thrown under the bus because Mexico got a better outcome. So I finished my briefing fairly detailed. We all think we're in there just for Aaron O'Toole to brief the team on why we were going to go sort of hard with him on NAFTA. And Andrew said, I have something to say. And he got to the mic and then Jill walked in. And some of his staff walked in, and as you know, Tony, only caucus are in the caucus room, right. not other people. So that's when everyone knew something was happening. And he announced to the team, then we went up to the house, and then, of course, as I'm sitting there three seats over from him, he's resigning, and my phone is going crazy. And that night, I was uh, already scheduled to go back to the riding, and I was at a Christmas party hosted by our mutual friend James uh, Tony and I was there uh, too. Yes, and by then I was already getting calls, and a lot of people that had said said to me, "You'll have to decide very quickly because Peter McKay's been kind of campaigning quietly for a year." And I had really thought Andrew was going to win the election in the fall. And when I lost the leadership, I tried my best to work for the leader and the, the person that won. It's the military guy in me. I'm inherently loyal. I got some big wins when we, you know, Trudeau's trip to India, the Admiral Mark Norman affair, SNC. You know, I was front and center with the team, and I thought I'd be in Andrew Shear's cabinet. So when he resigned, Rebecca and I very quickly, and key friends within the day, started talking about it. And when people comment asked me that night in Toronto, I was very open to say, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm not going to hesitate like I did last time. I took a summer to decide last time, mm-hmm. and that really cost me a lot of support. So within a week, we had decided, but literally within minutes of Andrew's announcement, my old team was emailing me saying, look, we all like each other after the last campaign. We thought if we had won, we probably would have won the election. Let's do this. So within really a week, we had most of our core team, and then Fred Delory, my campaign manager, had a list a mile long saying, here are people wanting to support you call them. If we can get them on board by Christmas, if we can get most of the people on this list, I think we can win this, despite what the media are saying about the coronation of Peter McKay. Mm-hmm. And almost every call I made, people said, hey, you I, you were my number two last time. I really liked the campaign you ran. You had some good policy. So by the time we went into Christmas, um, we said, okay, have a, have a plan together to win. Show us what we have to raise. And let's put this in action in, in January. And that's what we did. I, I want to, you referenced your military career. I, I have a follow-up question about that because you're the only candidate who can say that they served in Canada's military. And I have this image in my head. And I, if you want to disabuse me, please do so. But I have an image of 
any military as a kind of a top-down organization because uh, hierarchy and chain of command is so uh, important to a successful running of a military. So uh, I, I, I want to ask you, what lessons in terms of management style do you take from the military and how is your management style different from my description of a military being a top-down organization? Uh, that's a great question, Tony. And, you know, look, most people that haven't served in the military have that absolute top-down uh, impression, mainly from watching Full Metal Jacket or Platoon or, or things like this. Early in your military career, when you're at boot camp, when I went from Bowmanville High School to Chilliwack, B.C. to boot camp, yeah, they were knocking a chip off my shoulder, and they had zero trust that I knew what I was doing with the, the men and women that were entrusted to my command as you were learning how to uh, how to lead, how to follow. So early in your career, it's very regimented, it's very top-down, but later on, our professional military, Tony, whether you're a junior officer or a senior NCO, there is a lot of flexibility given to you to adjust your leadership style. So when I flew in a Sea King helicopter crew, I was the tactical navigator running the mission, whether it's hunting submarine or doing search and rescue, we really collaborated, and I had a sensor operator who was usually a sergeant, uh, and then two two pilots. And as a as a crew, along with the Navy, there was a lot of collaborative leadership and trust and delegation. So it's not as top down as you think, but you are taught military psychology. You're taught to inspire, and I always say, you cannot lead if you've not shown you can follow, mm-hmm. because there's nothing like having been in the position as a junior operator or a junior pilot or a junior sensor operator uh, so that you know if you're asking them to do something, you've done it yourself and you've earned your strikes, so to speak, a military term. Um, and so I learned a lot about versatility, creativity, and respect for the team. That's why when I lost to Andrew Shear, I fell in the line and I was one of his senior NCOs type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But now I think I've got all the skills to lead and I really don't think um, anyone else in the race has that unique collection of skills that I do. I, I think I'm the only one that can can beat Trudeau, and I'd be the first veteran to become prime minister since Lester B. Pearson, which I think is an interesting stat too. Mm-hmm. And I've got that's my next follow up because you you referenced this. How are you going to be able to beat Justin Trudeau in the next election? Um, well, it's not as hard as people think. Um, last Sunday, and Tony, you know I'm a big Churchillian. Sunday, this past Sunday, marked 75 years to the day that Winston Churchill lost the election in the UK less than two months after defeating tyranny and saving the That's right. That's right. Right? And so... To Clement uh, Attlee. Exactly. And mainly, Churchill's party, the Tory party at the time, was still deeply unpopular pre-war from scandals from when Churchill wasn't even the leader. So... (laughs) People admired uh, getting through and the country pulling together. But when the election came, they actually looked and said, who is speaking to me? Who is going to get this country moving? And that's, I think, is going to happen again. I, I hate even using a Churchill analogy when it comes to Justin Trudeau because they're, they're light years apart in terms of credibility and intelligence and a whole range of things. But anybody who thinks these polls now mean anything uh, don't understand politics. People will be making a decision on who is best suited to make us ready for a second wave, 
and build the country back to prosperity from a pit of debt deficit and really lack of confidence. And we will do that. And this is where having the ex-military guy, having the ex-private sector lawyer who's actually got real experience and someone who served in the Harper government when you and I together, Tony, we were balancing the budget and, and getting our products to market. I think people will be looking for a take charge leader, not the celebrity uh, hashtag guy that they have with Justin Trudeau. And if you look at the map, Everywhere Doug Ford won a seat two, two years ago, we have to win those seats. So I also think having a 905 um, middle-class dad who served this country, who can relate to people, um, if we win those seats that Doug won just two years ago, we will form a majority government, and that's what I will deliver. You know, I think that's so important because our opponents uh, like to paint the Conservative Party of Canada as the party of the past. So part of... Uh, Part of the job of the new leader is going to be to project modernity in some way, while at the same time being true to our own principles. Because there's nothing, there's nothing that conservatives like the least than feeling that they're not being conservative about something. So, uh, how how do you thread that needle? That you hit the nail on the head, Tony. Um, you have to show that you're proud to be a conservative. I think Peter McKay got in this race thinking that if he went into the mushy middle and was just a little bit to the right of Justin Trudeau, that we'd somehow limp across the finish line. Well, no, there's lots of choices in the middle. In fact, the Green, the NDP, the Liberals, sometimes they're even hard to tell apart on certain issues. What we have to do is build on our principles, and people's, people that didn't even vote for us in the fall know we're strong on the economy, on lower taxes, on business and job growth. We have to take that strength and show them, look, we also care about the environment. We also have plans to save small businesses, like small business owners in Brampton or Mississauga or Oshawa struggling because they weren't in Trudeau's COVID plan. A leader that shows that we can get through this time, not through phony press conferences in front of his cottage, but from someone who has a plan to say, here's how Canada's going to get back on track. Here's how the auto workers out of work are going to get back on track. Here's how we're going to get a softwood lumber deal. Here's how we're going to take some jobs back from China and some of the countries breaking the rules while Canada's following the rules and, and not benefiting. I think a, a clear vision built on our principles, but with a new leader and a new style, builds on our past with success for our future. You know, I think that's so important, uh, looking at the victory of the UK Conservatives with uh, Boris Johnson, uh, they sought not only to be the party of the middle class, but also the party of the working class. And, uh, you, you know, we as conservatives do believe that we have the best interests of the working class in mind and that uh, their pretend friends are not really there for them when it, when it counts. So that's got to be part of your strategy as well. 100%. And you said it probably than I, better than I just did. You know, people think that Boris Johnson won only because of, of Brexit. No, in many ways, Brexit was the reason why UK Tories got a lot of voters, especially in the north of England, to look twice on why they were voting Labour. Some of these seats that had voted Labour for like 90 years, did Jeremy Corbyn stand up for your job, your way of life? Does he even understand your way of life? Or is he um, posing for the activist groups in London in a way that actually doesn't speak to you, actually undermines your ability to work in the private sector or in your private sector union. 
And so I think there's going to be a time for voters in Windsor and Hamilton and parts of British Columbia to kind of say, Jagmeet Singh and most of his caucus supported the illegal rail blockade that was uh, putting people out of work, that was hurting our economy. How does that help uh, an auto worker in Oshawa or Windsor? How does that help a steel worker? How does Jerry Dias being on Trudeau's uh, NAFTA committee and the aluminum workers, the Unifor workers in Kitimat, B.C. being thrown under the bus, how are they being represented by a government that is actually anti-resource, anti-manufacturing, and has really failed on the trade front? So my, my message to those voters, hey, hey, you may have voted NDP for the last 40 years, but if you want to work and provide for your family and build this country and be proud of the Canada flag and our history, join us. The other groups, they're social justice movements. They're not political parties anymore. And I think we can win seats that we haven't won in decades. You've been an outspoken uh, critic of the cancel culture before perhaps even that term was known by a lot of people. Um, I, I really would like to uh, understand how you would like to advance that discussion, how it'll help with, let's say, racial harmony, uh, how it would be hel- helpful f- to respect other views that are not one's own. That's that's really something that is now being talked about, especially after that uh, that uh, letter by 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 the likes of Noam Chomsky and Margaret Atwood and J.K. Rowling saying, "Beware of people who want to cancel out views that are antithetical to their own." So it looks like we've you, you what you were talking about a couple of years ago is now something that is more generally being talked about. You're right. I found that very interesting, Tony. And in fact, uh, I started talking about these things about three and a half years ago. And in my launch video in January, I talked about cancel culture and used used some images of a Sir John A. statue being taken down in Victoria, B.C. And the media kind of mocked me for it in January. And what I said at the time years ago, when Trudeau took the name of a father of confederation, Hector Langevin, just one of two French-Canadian Fathers of Confederation who attended all the Canada conferences. When he took that down, I said, this is a slippery slope when you're using today's morals and today's perspective to judge and even alter our coverage of the past. It's a form of cancel culture. It's a form of revisionism that actually could hurt us from actually learning about the past, celebrating the good things, but actually educating to make sure we learn from the bad things. And at the time, I reminded people, and the liberals went crazy when I said this, but I said, you know who opened more residential schools than Hector Langevin, who was McDonald's Indian Affairs Minister for one year at Confederation? Pierre Trudeau opened more of them, six of them, a hundred years after we knew the program was a problem. And so this is the other thing I call out sometimes even the media. Sir Johnny McDonald, uh, Hector Langevin, both conservative icons, they're okay to take down, but I don't see any move to take Laurier or Pierre Trudeau's name off an airport. It's another way that the left actually use their activism to attack the right. And so I've said, let's learn uh, rather than erase. And I've even gone on university campuses to debate Sir John A. McDonald's statues. My, my staff at the time joked. They said goodbye because they said, we may not see you again, Aaron. <laughs> But it's important for us to to do this, and as conservative leader, I will go on the campuses and say, look, you're here to be challenged, not coddled. Free speech is a fundamental, perhaps the most fundamental principle of our democratic society, 
And if you really want to be educated, you have to think outside your own narrow window. And uh, maybe I might need a police escort to do this, but I think that's the best defense for free speech. And in this race, who's the only candidate that's been talking about this for several years? It's, it, it's me. It's, it's topical now, and everybody's putting posts out on it. But I invite your readers, check out my blog from three years ago, mm-hmm. where I actually use a test from Yale to assess whether statues or things should come down. Because the U.S. experience, because of Jim Crow, is totally different mm-hmm. than Canadian history. I agree with you on that, for sure. Aaron O'Toole is our guest. He's one of the candidates in the conservative leadership race. Aaron, quickly wanted to get your thoughts on the race so far and what it's been like not being able to campaign in a typical sense because of the coronavirus, your interactions with the other candidates. Have you? How have you felt it's, it's gone? Has it been divisive? Has it been ugly? Has it been pretty tame? Um, you know, it has not been ugly or divisive. I do think one thing we learned from the last race, I, I was in both, so I can assess them. We had 14 candidates last time, and uh, Tony was in the early part of last time. Uh, For about a second and a half, yeah. Yeah, and and so we could have had more, and I would have liked it, because Tony would have been uh, somebody debating policy and, and ideas. Last time, because there were so many people, the debates were a joke. There was no contrast between candidates. And literally, people just tried to narrow cast and then make deals for down-ballot support. So Andrew made a deal with Lisa and and Vice and a bunch of other sort of down-ballot. So there wasn't any real debate. I tried to put out some policy. We had Kevin O'Leary come in and tweet a few things and think he could just win that way. And uh, I think it's a time where we challenge people. So a number of people said to me, you know, Andrew Shear didn't have a great election last time. And I said, well, in some ways, I think we didn't challenge him enough. Mm-hmm. Andrew hadn't been a minister. We didn't have a leadership where there was really much debate. So this time, I've challenged Peter McKay. I, you know, every time he appears in front of the media camera, he bobbles the issue or even walks off set. If we don't have someone that can take the pressure of a political campaign, the liberal war room, a media that's against us, we won't win the next election. So our members need to sort of contrast who's got the, the chops, who's ready to go, who has a good track record of taking on difficult things and communicating well. This is, I think, what I can do, whether it's cancel culture or whether it's fighting for a pipeline. I think I have an ability to not only set out a vision, but to to build the team to accomplish it. I want to raise one more issue with you, and that's uh, China, or as Donald Trump would say, China. China. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, China's growing malevolence on the world stage is uh, now be becoming very, very evident to a lot more people. And uh, we just have to look at uh, the security laws in Hong Kong or how they treat Uyghurs in, uh, in uh, Western China uh, to, to see that. Uh, you, uh, as part of your parliamentary duties, have been calling out uh, the People's Republic of China, the Chinese government, on these matters for years and uh, have also called upon Taiwan's accession to the World Health Organization, just a, as a case in point. So uh, can you assess how Canada is doing on the China p- policy and how you could do better? Well, I, I'm glad you asked this, Tony, because for years there were only a handful of us, you included, raising concerns about the Communist Party of China and their encroachment on international institutions, uh, trade patterns, a whole range of things. And, you know, four or five years ago, I said Huawei should never be part of our 5G infrastructure and we should 
we should have worked then with our Five Eyes allies to keep them out. And Trudeau had a different agenda. I think the Harper government, we were very cautious when it came to China. We weren't willing to just turn the other way for the almighty buck and, and increase trade. We called out human rights. We worked with the Dalai Lama and granted him citizenship. And we did certain things to show principled approach, whereas Trudeau set an agenda to negotiate a free trade agreement. And he was willing to acquiesce to every demand. He even reversed a few takeovers of security companies. And in one case, it was a it was an acquisition that the conservatives had denied mm-hmm. in our last year in government on security grounds. He reversed it, and his transition team was chaired by the former head of the Canada China Business Council. And we know how Chinese money funded the Trudeau Foundation. So Trudeau, in 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 the parlance of intelligence world, Trudeau was compromised mildly, but he's been compromised and he's not been an effective leader. And the result is he ran into the reality of Beijing head first when the Meng Wanzhou arrest happened, and they picked up some of our citizens uh, to to hold over our head to, to, to threaten us with. And I've always said we need a principled approach. That's why I created a parliamentary oversight committee for Canada-China relations. My, my motion was the first defeat for Trudeau in the House. I'm going to make sure we work with Australia, the UK, our traditional Five Eyes allies, to rebalance the global approach to China and to rebalance trade in our interests. And I think this is a real real moment for principle-based foreign policy. We've got time for one more question. What's the last book that you read? Ah, well, I read most of it. Uh, it was a book called Bowling Alone, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you've heard of it. I have heard but of it. it. It's an interesting indictment of you know, society today, people aren't joining things. So why are legion, legions having trouble and rotary clubs and lions clubs and even uh, church attendance in some places? And, and society is not as connected anymore, even though we have social media connecting us. And this was a book kind of analyzing the fact that the bowling leagues of the past and these ways for society to, to understand each other better uh, is something, how can we recreate that? Because we're getting more distant at a time we're supposed to be more connected. So something I've looked at both as when I was veterans minister, I was trying to help the Legion and some of these veterans groups modernize. Even in our own party, it's hard to get people uh, to buy a $15 membership anymore unless they have a very passionate issue they want to champion people aren't joining things anymore so how are we going to adapt the liberals are giving away free memberships and uh, all they want is your email and because Mm -hmm. they have no principles it doesn't matter we have principles so how do we make sure we get younger people more women more first generation canadians in our movement i've been i've been thinking about that for many years because i believe in this party and i believe in the country there you go aaron thanks so much for being a guest we appreciate it we wish you all the best and if you are, when you are elected leader, we hope that uh, we will be one of your first stops on the podcast tour, definitely before you go on the hurly burly. <laughs> well, I will promise you that right here, gentlemen. Oh, yeah. You guys are, are my favorite over that one. <laughs> Perfect. And Thank another you. thing, 
Yes. When this broadcast wins an award for best political guest podcast of the year, yeah. please invite me to the award. Ceremony. Okay, well we'll get we'll, we'll get all dressed up for that for sure. And the winner is. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be done by Zoom anyway. Exactly. You have to get dressed up. Exactly. Get dressed up up top, and I'm usually wearing boxers below. So, <laughs> so let's be well, guys. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for your friendship. All the best. So you've never asked me what's the last book I read. Okay, uh, Jody Jenkins, what's the last book that you've read? Uh, Archie, uh, <laughs> episode 654. Okay, is that the one with Betty or Veronica? Riverdale's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> that was a real page turner, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, so that was good. So now we got all the uh, candidates out of the way. Yes. We get to move on to something else. We will. Uh, you, we've got the U.S. Uh, presidential and general election. Uh, that's going to be a topic next week after uh, we uh, have uh, posted the one with Aaron O'Toole. I wish I had my phone with me because I'd play a clip of that Joe Biden song. Remember when we were calling? Oh, it's and classic. there's this Joe Biden auto-tuned song where he's talking about a shot, double-barrel shotgun. Well, how do you search it? You go to YouTube go and to search? YouTube, look up uh, Joe Biden song, double-barrel, and I think you'll find you'll it. You'll find it's, it. It's, it's classic. It's unreal. Yeah. It's unreal. So anyway, seven days. We'll talk again. Thanks so much. You bet.